see, we're on a mission from God. I'm your host, Amanda Qureshi, also known as Q. And today's guest is coming to us from beautiful California. This is Lil Milagro. And she and I met maybe oh, wow. years ago, uh, nine like, years ago. Yeah, I think like nine or nine years ago. Okay. Yes. And we met at the same retreat where I met Jim Keat. The Faith in America Challenge, 2030 yes. Faith in American Challenge. Yes, he was. I just had an interview with him yesterday. <laughs> Nice. (laughs) For some reason, the people that I met at that retreat were all so awesome. I've kept in touch with them. They were good people. It was a great retreat. I remembered learning a lot. I don't remember any of what I learned now, but I remembered at the time. This is really important work. Yes. Yes. Well, and so when I first met you, you were doing some really cool work around faith and around faith community. And now you're doing something completely different. And we're going to talk about all of that. But the first thing I do on my podcast, have you listened to any of my podcasts? No, not ah. yet. I will, I will to this <laughs> one. <laughs> no worries, no worries. Uh, no, I, I get stats, so I know how few people listen to my podcast. Um, so I ask icebreaker questions. Are you ready for them? Sure. Okay. So the first icebreaker question is, what is the last thing that you watched on TV? Oh, that is a good one. What was the last thing I watched? That's not a big watcher. I'm more of a reader. But I think the last thing I watched was Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's this kind of like cop show that's a comedy, but it also feels like it's cop propaganda. (laughs) Right? It's like, because you know how like a lot of cop shows are all about uh, how the cops, like they're like inherently good and criminals are inherently bad and look what important work they're doing in our community. And so it's a comedy around like this like police station in Brooklyn uh, and the good guys are always, the cops are always for the most part good and the criminals are for the most part bad. And, but it's really hilarious. And it has Terry Crews, who I love. And it has like two uh, Latina leads and it's a fairly diverse show. And so that's like what really pulls me in because I don't really see a lot of that. Yeah. Um, but it's also like so sanitized, which is in many ways like really good and then in many ways really bad. Uh, good because I've definitely like watched some shows that feel really offensive, uh-huh. like even as they're playing into like humor or stereotyping and this doesn't do that. And that alone makes it tolerable for me to watch. Even yeah. if I'm like, I know that this is not what cops do on a daily basis is like on an ongoing daily basis is just catch all the bad guys and they never have any you know racial racist interactions or any of that so all right well you know we all deserve a little fantasy once in a while it's true (laughs) okay where where is this show Uh, it is on hulu Hulu. which i just finished it yesterday and so i'm now canceling my hulu subscription (laughs) (laughs) it was the only thing i wanted to watch on hulu really yeah We do have Hulu, so I can check it out. I will check that out. Okay, so then the second question you may like more, which is what is the last book that you read? 
Oh, I love that question. So I am a huge sci-fi fantasy nerd. Uh Uh, Last year, I read 116 books, most of them sci-fi fantasy. This year, I have a hundred book reading goal. Holy shit. Yeah. That is a lot of books. I mostly read books. I don't really watch TV. I don't really like TV. But um, I discovered uh, the Firefly novelization series. There's four books and they're each standalones of like, they almost like read like episodes of Firefly, pre-Serenity. And I kind of demolished all of them. So the last one I read was the last generations, I think it's called like Firefly Generations. And that was the last thing I read and now I'm sad. Well, that I read all of them. So, so all the trauma of like watching the show and not having any more episodes has been revisited upon you because you've read all the books. <laughs> no I've read all the books now. <laughs> I just started reading the graphic novels, so I have one okay. more graphic novel to go to complete it. But then, then I also have the Firefly board game and oh my god, the Firefly cookbook. So I can I can like still revisit the Firefly universe in yes. different ways. Yeah, it's that show. And I'm not the type that really gets sucked into like fandoms or anything, but that show, I, as far as the impact that it had on your imagination as a viewer, outsized so many other programs, right? That were right. often that went for years longer. I mean, it was so rich in imagination. It was. And it's it's interesting because like I was reading an article that was talking about Game of Thrones, which was another show I was really into and how Game of Thrones ended. And within like a week or two, like nobody talks about it anymore, mm. you know, and how like yeah. it doesn't have any lasting impact beyond the fact that like it actually had an amazingly deep impact when it was running. But the last episode was so bad the last season <laughs> that people don't even talk about it anymore. And Firefly isn't like this. I mean, it was only what, like eight, nine episodes. And my biggest... Um, my biggest regret in life is I didn't watch it when it aired. Uh-huh. So I wasn't like officially a brown coat that was officially part of the effort to like get Serenity up and going. But I love that show. Like it's the show I watch when I get sad <laughs> or when I get like, when I need to calm myself down or I'm like, oh, I need some comfort. And so it's it's my go-to. Yeah, yeah. I have watched the series multiple times. I've watched Serenity multiple times. What is the board game like? Oh, the board game is delightful. Really? It is like you are, you captain a ship and uh, you have to get a crew. Uh, there's all of these items that you can pick up and then you do jobs. So then you get solid with people. So you can get solid with Badger or Nitska or Patience. And then there's like six, I think it's like six expansion packs of which I also have all of them uh, that can like load out the universe so it's even bigger. And, and there's all these different goals. So you can play the game like multiple times uh, and you can be different types of captains. And it's literally, if you've ever even worked as an extra in the show Serenity or Firefly, you have a card out there that is dedicated to you wow. that like you can pick up and have them join your crew. That's awesome. <laughs> it's like, such a fun now game. Now my goal is to come to California after the <laughs> pandemic and play this game with you. It's it's amazing. <laughs> I have so much fun playing it. <laughs> I'm gonna just show up on your doorstep with like a bag full of snacks and be like, "I'm here." Let's play. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So then the final icebreaker question is, "What did you have for breakfast?" Oh, I had a breakfast burrito with Ooh. hatch green chili. What? That sounds amazing. Yeah. Did you? Make I knew it I had to buy it. 
I made it because I knew I had the podcast. And so I was like, I'm going to have like a really, really good breakfast. And so I like heated up some sausage and some eggs and some potatoes wrapped it in a tortilla. And then I have this like really, really good hatch green chili that I just add to everything, which just kind of elevates everything to the next level. Yeah. I lived in New Mexico for a while. And like, I, that's like the thing that I remember most is the smell of the chili. They they roast them outside. Right. Right. And you'll go to the grocery store and they'll just be sitting out there roasting them. And it like the whole city smells like it during that time of year. So good. So so good. good. So good. Yeah. Okay. Well, those were excellent answers. And I have to say, I'm honored that you would eat breakfast in preparation for my podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It was the whole thing. Normally it's just like a piece of bread with some cheese and an egg and some green chili. But I was like, I'm going in, I'm going to concentrate and ground in. Nice. Nice. You have set the bar. And now, now I'm going to really judge my other guests (laughs) on that question it was initially it was just sort of like for interest but now I I want to know right what are people doing to prepare for this interview (laughs) question exactly okay so now we can now we're done with the icebreakers we're warmed up you feel warm yes okay now we can move on um where shall we start let's start back when I first met you because I think I think what you're doing now is so interesting, but I kind of want people to know just sort of the big picture of Lil Milagro. So where where were you nine years ago when we met? Yes, yeah, so nine years ago, I don't remember if I was pregnant when I met you or immediately after, but um, nine years ago, I was working at the, I believe it was the National Domestic Worker Association as their Northern California Fields Coordinator for the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights. And I was really interested in exploring the question because we had just had put together this like conference with um, domestic workers from across the state because we we're trying to get the Domestic Worker Bill of Rights passed. And I remembered um, we, it was the conference itself was great. And I remembered that when we were asking people for feedback, uh, they wrote in the the biggest response which had been written in was that they wanted us to find a way to incorporate God into the movement. Wow. And I remembered bringing it up uh, with people and it was, and I feel like this is still true today, not just within, you know, this particular space, but within a lot of nonprofit organizations is like, there was this like hesitancy to really dive into the field of religion. And there was a desire to like, not, you know, merge those two places. And I feel like as a result, what we've seen really nationally is that like we've seeded, the left is like really seeded religion to the right uh, and allowed for, you know, stepping into like a place of moral high ground because the left just doesn't want to touch it. Right. And I think that's really unfortunate. And at the time uh, I really wanted to explore, like, what does it mean for us to create a holistic, comprehensive understanding of what brings women, particularly immigrant women who we're working with, into into movement space? Like, how are they bringing in their faith into this space? And so that that conference, the Faith and Nathan Cummings, I think, Faith in America Challenge, was for me like one of the first ways that I started to think about like what does it mean for us to create like a holistic organizing platform that can allow us to really tap in um, to this this part of ourselves that I feel like often gets ignored in the left so that's where I was stepping in to that space as and which later like led me to 
a, you know, try to get a PhD in theology, but I really wanted to explore that question. How did, how did the bill turn out? It it passed. Uh, It passed like the year, like a few months after I went on maternity leave because then I got pregnant. Uh, Mm -hmm. I wasn't like working the campaign during the time, but the bill has gotten passed. And I know that it's, I remembered it was like up for uh, recertification. And I think it also passed. uh, And it's an important, just such an important step because, you know, farm workers and domestic workers are one of the only people that aren't really protected nationally under labor laws. Yeah. Why do you think the left is so hesitant to work with spirituality and religion? Oh, that's a great question. That's also a complicated question. I think that one of the things that I think about um, is, and that's in the United States, right? Like we don't see that play out in Latin America. Right. And I think that there's I think we do something in the US that feel in our nonprofit or activism organizing spaces that just feels like really, really siloed. That we've like learned how to compartmentalize different parts of our lives and even different parts of different movements, right? Like the labor movement largely just talks to the labor movement unless like they need to push a bill forward or, you know, like women's rights, like just post, like, I mean, I feel like people just really stay within their silos. And I think the piece with religion is it can feel so scary to people to even open up that door uh, and to like think deeper at a deeper level. And the deeper level piece I think is really important because like culturally, unless we figure out that deeper level, even if we're getting laws passed, uh, it's not gonna have the intended effect that we want because we haven't done the cultural deep work that we need to be able to do. And I think that in, in the US, like what happens in the left is like, there's so much focus on both like, how do we stay siloed in what we're doing and how do we get a particular law passed, right? And so it's almost like, here's our course and like, let's just run that course. And I think that that feels inauthentic to who people are. I mean, I think Audre Lorde has that great quote that's like, we don't lead single, there's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we don't lead single issue lives. And I think that that fear of like, what does it mean to go beyond just like, here's who we are, here's the thing we wanna get past uh, is, and we don't wanna complicate that with anything else uh, means that like we've, like I said, really ceded the, like that territory to the right. Cause then the right defines it in all kinds of, right. the right can define it in really uh, intense, really, I feel like almost anti-religious ways and it's scary. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think this concept of intersectionality is, we've heard so much more about it in the last 10 years. I think that is the effort to kind of bring people all together and allow us to kind of cross over. But what that ends up doing is creating a lot of friction in leftist spaces. And to be, we have to figure out a way to navigate that in a that in a way that is true to what we all each believe, but that doesn't sacrifice our greater goals. So for example, just the easiest example I can think of would be, you know, there's a lot of uh, our GLBTQ community who have been done wrong but in religious spaces or by religion, by organized or institutionalized religion. And mm-hmm. it can be very triggering for them to sit in a room with somebody who has very traditional religious views, right? And even if they have the same idea around a certain issue or a certain bill, if you start if you start bringing religion into it, it ends up being really, really painful 
for some folks. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't know how, I don't know the answer. This is not an easy answer. And I've, I'm watching leadership across the country really grapple with what this looks like and not just with religion, but with all these different things that are part of our lives. And, um, and I don't know, I don't know how, I feel like the siloing is actually the easiest, is the easy answer there. That's yeah. why we do it. It's because it's too, it's too hard to try to make all that work. So we're just like, okay, well, we'll just make these lanes <laughs> and we'll all mm. stick them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. No, I agree. And I think that it also makes me think about how we don't know how to have difficult conversations. Yeah. I feel like in this country as a whole, whether that's like left or right or whoever, you know, I feel like it's something that I even, you know, I remember the expression, like the one thing we don't talk about at the dinner table is religion and politics. Right. Well, those are two really important places that we should learn how to have really difficult conversations. And if we're not having them in a safer space, you know, or, or a space that should be safer, like our home, then how are we even then learning how to have those difficult conversations elsewhere? And I think that that's part of the, like the really deep cultural work that we need to do um, and which we haven't done, which has led to now uh, an environment that feels incredibly divisive to say anything that even within spaces that you think are affinity spaces, you know, if you say something that people disagree with, there's no place to have like a really, really difficult conversation and to hold that with love. Right. Absolutely. What is your, what is your cultural background, your heritage? So I am, my mother and father are from Cuzatlan, uh, El Salvador. Okay. And so I, come from like a very rich history of like liberation theology mm -hmm. and my family members thinking like using their faith, their Catholic faith in this case, um, to really think deeply into what does that mean for how we walk in alignment uh, with, with different communities. And my dad grew up in the Caribbean coast of Nicaragua in a place called Bluefields that was colonized by the English and not the Spanish. So they speak some Spanish there, but like a lot of Creole and a lot of English. Mm. Uh, and I identify as a detribalized descendant of Nahuatl people from Cuzatlan, El Salvador. Excellent. So have you had an opportunity to go and visit? You were raised here, I'm assuming. I was raised in New Orleans, uh, okay. Louisiana, but yeah. And so in my, for my master's degree, well, before my master's, like just in high school and, you know, growing up, we would go visit El Salvador and we'd go visit my uncle. And then when I was getting my master's degree, my master's um, project will focus on how Nahuatl people are establishing themselves and holding on to their cultural identities uh, as they move into cities, right? So, because uh, a lot of their identity, a lot of Nahuatl identity is like, as with many native uh, communities is like very much attached to like the land and the space. And so what does that mean if you take all of that away? Uh, and then you get pushed into like an urban environment like San Salvador or like a big city where you don't have that immediate connection to land and where people aren't speaking your language so that's that was my project was like how are we how are now communities really thinking now people communities really thinking into their own um, sense of self in an entirely different environment and wow. and in a country that is not receptive to them because el salvador doesn't consider itself as having very many now peoples they say that they're actually one of the only mestizo countries that they wiped out all of the native people which is not true obviously but um it's a very hostile to indigeneity country. Wow. Well, that sounds familiar. 
Okay, so that's interesting on a couple different levels, but I think, so So then I guess my next question to you would be, since this is a really important part of who you are, and since you, you know, you've actually spent time academically studying it, how are you bringing your culture and the, the ideals and the identity that is so deeply ingrained in who you are into typical American workspaces <laughs> and what does that look like for you and do you feel like you're able to impact those spaces and bring some of the gifts that that you have and that your culture has taught you into those spaces I'll say that one of the things that I'm really learning about is what does it mean to identify like as a detribalized person yeah from a native group. And it's a term that I had only recently learned about. My husband uh, does, he's getting his PhD in like native studies at UC Davis. And so he was telling me, I was, I was talking to him about the complexities of my identity and trying to figure out like who I am. Cause I, you know, both grew up in a very like Latina context, but then I also am very much connected to, to wanting to go back to figure out like who we are and like, what are those ancestral practices that have been left behind through the process of like colonization and assimilation, both in Cuzatlan, El Salvador, as well as like, you know, when my family moved to New Orleans. And so the thing that I think about a lot is what does it mean for me uh, and for the spaces I inhabit to like be, thinking deeper to kind of like think through those like hard cultural questions about who we are or who I am in this case uh, and what I want to do and what I want to learn. And so in, in each of the spaces I've walked in, uh, so whether that was the, you know, NWA space or, you know, later on I started working at Roses and Concrete as the community school, as the director of organizing, it's, I've always tried to think through like, what does it mean for us to think into our ancestral practices and traditions. Right. And, and by that, it's not just like, a, how do I uncover who I am, but then also how do I start thinking in a different way and, and, and moving my worldview in a different way that is not just accepting of what is immediately in front of me, uh, which is like a very, like US context, right? Which is a very like Protestant work ethic. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps, you know, productivity is everything. Uh, and so I've really tried to like say, no, actually this is not actually part of my lineage and my heritage and how, and I don't quite know exactly how to reconcile um, that ancestral like lineage and heritage with my current environment, right? Which is like deep East Oakland and so it's something like I, I grapple with, but I always try to keep open as both like a place of curiosity and a place of thinking. So that's like one way it's just like how, so at Roses, it was really thinking about like, what does it mean to start like learning more about um, my own personal traditions and like opening up that as a conversation place with young people that I'm working with. Uh, because I feel like I'm not the only one that is like, ah, I feel like I'm neither here nor there, right? Like uh, Gloria Anzaldúa talks about, about that a lot. It's like that Nepantla, that's like middle ground. And so opening it up as a place of vulnerability and as a place of not knowing to be able to invite others who also may be thinking about it from a place of vulnerability and not knowing. And then to think, okay, so then if this is that not knowing, then what would we want to explore both intellectually, like spiritually, like physically in terms of practices that we can bring into that not knowing space. 
So, and that can look like anything from learning more about traditional ecological knowledge and how we put together spaces, or it can look like, okay, what are tinctures and herbs that I can like learn how to make and, or like, how do I develop a deeper relationship with like plant and animal relatives? And how do I, you know, intentionally pray with ancestry to be able to have like guidance or support, even if it feels like sometimes I don't quite know exactly what that looks like, but you know, there's, so I really try to think into that place of like not knowing and opening it up and then figuring out like, how do we have conversations around what does it mean to not know? Uh, and then to own that vulnerability as a place of strength. And there's a fantastic, I'm, I am a huge Game of Thrones fan. I'm a big sci-fi fantasy nerd. So there's probably a lot of quotes that are gonna come up Absolutely. that are sci-fi fantasy related, but there's this great Tyrion Lannister quote. Uh, and he says something along the lines of, uh, you know, you should always take your weaknesses. If you own your weaknesses, then you can create them as strengths and then people will not be able to use them against you. And I really appreciated that um, because oftentimes with places of weakness, weakness, quote unquote, or vulnerability, we don't want to share for fear of getting attacked. But if we own that as a place of strength, then like, how does that invite both conversation, but then also in many ways, how does it serve as like a shield against, you can't use this against me. You can't say that I'm not this enough or not that enough because I'm open about that. Right. Right. I actually, I, I agree with that completely. And I think that that actually works well, not just with identity, but with trauma, with almost anything. If you are willing to own it and own it publicly, you know, on your own terms, then, right. then you're much safer, actually, and much stronger and much uh, more resilient. Um, so I, this is, I have so many thoughts swirling in my head. It's hard to even compose questions. <laughs> so I started out last year reading James Baldwin and I read a bunch of James Baldwin and he talks a lot about how uh, about identity and how hard it is to actually know who you are in America as a black man or a black person, but also just as an American person, because we are such a weird place, like really weird place. Like we have just, it's almost like we don't, we don't know who we are. We don't know who we are, right? And so I, I look at someone like you or James Baldwin, who, you know, you, you came up to that point with yourself. You're like, well, who am I? I think everybody goes through that at some point mm -hmm. in their life, but you were able to do that. And then be, and then you had this moment where you stepped back. You're like, well, I'm not going to accept what everyone else says I am. I'm going to go figure that out for myself. So then mm -hmm. you go back and you start reconnecting with your heritage and your family and your history and these ideas and you know your your spirituality and all of that and it's an obviously it's an ongoing process but you have evolved into the person that you are as this very unique and beautiful and interesting person based on what you were able to find when you stopped and looked back and i think that that is a scary and difficult process for a lot of people, I think that a lot of what we see in America today, a lot of the dysfunction that we see in America today is that people don't know who they are and they're, they don't even know where to start looking. <laughs> mm -hmm. I think that's why you see a lot of white people that pretend to be people of color, maybe because they don't have, they don't know what to fall back on. And so they just adopt this mythological past or heritage. What do you think 
having gone through that process or, or going through that process, what do you think, what would you tell someone if they had come to that point in their life where they're like, I, I don't really know who I am and I don't really trust the larger culture to tell me who I am because so much of what I see in the larger culture is hurtful. It hurts me and it hurts other people. And I, I want to define for myself who I am. What advice would you give to people to, uh, uh, of any background, of any gender, any person who wants to discover that for themselves? Yeah, I think that that's another good question. There's all good questions <laughs> coming out. I have out. so many questions for you. <laughs> you don't even know. <laughs> so I think one of the places that I think about it a lot and is I really started to figure out who I was or who I'm, I'm thinking I'm becoming, you know, in this world um, when I started struggling alongside people. Mm. And wow. I think that it is, and this goes, you know, maybe back to that liberation theology piece where, you know, I've been blessed to have family members that were, that did, you know, fight uh, against like fascism, fight against oppression within El Salvador, and they tied directly their faith to it. And they never thought to separate their faith from their actions. And so when I started thinking about like when I got to college and I started thinking about what does it mean for me to be doing this work, you know, in college, I really started identifying as queer uh, and I was trying to figure out what that means, right? Uh, and there's a sense that we often think in the United States that identity is something that is fixed and that right. is something that is inherent and true about ourselves. And I've found that like, I find pieces of myself in movement and in action uh, and in struggle. And that's actually for me, like for, for my faith or my spiritual practice, like it is, I feel God, I feel creator most when I am in struggle with people. And that can be, you know, like marching to, you know, speak out against police brutality and state sanctioned violence. That could be, um, you know, like taking actions on, you know, the dehumanization of like trans communities or, you know, like whatever it is, it's like something that for me lives in struggle. And in, and in struggle, it's not just that struggle. Um, it's also the conversations that we have with people that are also in struggle. So I started having those conversations with people about who they are and who they felt like they are and like creating affinity spaces of like, I don't know exactly who I am in this. This is kind of my affinity space. Um, can we just talk and hold that? And then I'm a huge reader. So then I feel like a lot of my identity has come up both in who am I fighting for? Who am I fighting alongside? Uh, who am I fighting with? And also very much like, how am I reading and thinking deeply? into in, in these in these larger worlds that people that are so much smarter than me have like thought themselves into right and i'm revisiting actually um this year post the firefly novelization <laughs> my next goal is to actually spend some time in a uh, theoretical conversation with audrey lord right yeah. and revisiting it that because i haven't read her since like undergrad and so it's, so it's a combination of both. It's like, how do you, what are the movements that call to you? Where do you feel, um, where's like your heart or your soul or your spirit calling you to look for justice? And then in those justice spaces, um, how are you 
thinking with people around what they're thinking about. So it's never just the, the solidary eye that is fixed and that is, you know, it has inherent truths. It is always in conversation with others, uh, whether that's through movement work, which I always support because I feel like there's more, more people are needed <laughs> for the movement that we want to build. But it could be any movement, right? It doesn't have to be I have the ones that I really love, but it could be really anything. Uh, and then also, well, unless it's obviously contributing to racism or homophobia or white yes, supremacist yes. culture, but regardless. Uh, and then like in, in books and in, you know, whether that's now we're blessed to also have podcasts. I think podcasts are a great way um, to explore different conversations, audiobooks. Like I feel like we have such a wealth of information at our fingertips. And so it's just like, what do you want to think into today? And I think that that is, has been one of the questions that has really driven me in my life because I love reading, I love study, and I think, what do I want to think into today? And doesn't mean you have to accept everything you're reading as like, now this has become part of me, but you can explore what that can look like across a plethora of platforms. Yeah, yeah. I love your, you know what, The this is absolutely the word that makes me think of you, and that is explore. You are a person who is so interested in not just not just learning, because learning is one thing, but exploring is a very different thing because it's quite visceral, right? Mm -hmm. you, you can you can read about another place or another time, but exploring means that you're actually going there and you're having a very tactile, very sensual kind of experience. And I think that that, that definitely reminds me of you. And it's also something that resonates really strongly with me. I, I love the idea. And, and maybe that's part of why you're so passionate about fantasy and things mm -hmm. like that, right? Like this, this captures your imagination to find new things, try new things, see new things. Really interesting. Yeah, and that's also why I do, I combine that also with like a very nerdy sense of like in like in exploration, then how do we bring all of the senses into it? You know, I'm a huge yeah. fan of like fantasy cookbooks. So like the Firefly cookbook. Uh, what? <laughs> like that. Or uh, the Game of Thrones cookbook is actually fantastic. Um, and so I think about what does it mean to immerse ourselves in different worlds? And yeah. What does it mean to to not have to again take on anything that doesn't feel like it's ours mm -hmm. but also there's so many pieces of us that are in places that we don't even think about and unless we explore and like lean into to even being open to that different way of being we'll never find that piece of us that was there right yeah. and so yes i i agree what would be your advice for people who so i guess i want to open up an opportunity for you to explain what it looks like for someone to explore something that's not theirs or or learn about something that's not theirs without you know this nasty appropriation or trying you know I and I say this as like I came from the interfaith world and I remember like we would have lots like lots of conversations around you know pe people would be very enthusiastic about like uh like Christian women would be like, we want to wear the hijab for the day, right? Uh, the scarf or, you know, uh, Christians celebrating uh, Jewish holidays or, or any kind of like getting these accoutrements of other faiths and, you know, experimenting with them and being really shocked when they're told that that's <laughs> not cool, right? right. Uh, and so what does it look like? Because I do think you're right. I, I have to say that the exploration of different 
everything, religions, cultures, people, whatever, has helped me find pieces of myself. It's, I can't even imagine not having exposure to all of those things. But also there's this line and I think it's even harder when you love something that's not yours, right? Like mm. uh, being, I'm married to a South Asian person. Like I can't, like I, it, it, I spent many years trying to find that line of what is him? What is his culture? And what are the things I can do to build in our, you know, build out our home, build out our marriage, build out our family to adopt for myself that don't make me feel like an imposter and don't make him feel like I'm trying to appropriate things. You know what I mean? Right. I do. Uh, I think that the, for me, like, it's like two different things. Like one is like the recognition that a lot of the traditions that we see that the people might want to like take on or think through um, are not void of the struggle and the trauma that created that as a possibility. So um, for example, I think about, I think about like something like hip hop, right? And I think about how hip hop emerged out of a particular time in a particular place like in New York, um, where there was a tremendous amount of trauma that communities of color, particularly Puerto Rican and black communities were experiencing um, against like police brutality, poverty. And so when we look at hip hop, hip hop itself, if we just explore it by itself, it is almost like separating it from the from the roots that, that grounded it and that created it. Right. And so I think about what does it mean when there is something that we are interested in, how are we not just taking the fruits of that labor in many ways, uh, but how are we actually growing the roots that created it and recognizing in creating those roots that that is those that that in many ways like that trauma that difficulty is just as important as the celebration and the resilience that that then make hip up hip hop, for example. And so when I think about something like cultural appropriation or the recognition that there are so many um, amazingly beautiful traditions out there that I might want to explore, it's like, how do I actually explore it within the full context of itself? Nice. How do I take it not just as something that is isolated from the people that really watered it and created it and were uh, using it as a potentially as an expression of hope or as an expression of grounding. Mm-hmm. And so how do I think into those struggles as well? And so I think about here um, in, in the East Bay, in Oak, East Oakland, I think about uh, you know, we talk a lot about how we are on native land. I don't know if it's just a liberal California thing, but every single meeting opens up with like, we are on native land. We want to recognize that we're, our, uh, you know, here it's uh, the Ohlone people. And then it's just a land acknowledgement. And then we just kind of move on with our day. And I think, no, actually, if we are going to be serious and we're going to take this seriously and we're going to even do that land acknowledgement, how do we also recognize the current struggles of the Ohlone people that are here? How are we paying our land tax to the people that are here? How are we showing up to their struggles? How are we, and showing up to struggles in a way that does not ask that we receive anything in return. Right. Right. And, I, and for me, that's like, how do we, if we are going to explore different traditions, how do we do it from an anti-oppressive framework in which we are still centering the voices and the experiences of both people that created those traditions? How are we recognizing the traumas and struggles that they are currently experiencing? How are we being humble enough to show up to a space to not 
say anything for like months if necessary to just like take it in uh, and then also then what is that relationship that we're creating with people so that we're stepping in when we do step into that space um, it is never just an isolated and individualized step that we are taking it is always something that is in relationship to community yeah yeah absolutely and I think this is such a difficult thing to talk about because because I think a lot of people do things with good intentions uh, like you said, opening up a meeting by acknowledging that you're on, you know, occupied land is one thing. And it's that is not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing to do. Mm-hmm. But it's divorced from something much more significant and much deeper. And I think that, uh, you know, and, and I will just say this as somebody on the left, right? I feel like we do that a lot because because it seems so overwhelming we can't do something about everything but so then we end up falling back on just um i don't want to say virtue signaling but but uh just very surface acknowledgement or or we take it to just be words are the same as deeds i guess i don't know and and it's not it's just not and i don't know i mean i, I there again there's no real good answer for that problem either because god knows i've tried to be you know tried to do everything and you just can't like you're just so overwhelmed trying to solve all the problems in the world but i i absolutely get what you're saying i think i think the word that's coming to my mind is um is humility which is you encounter differences with the understanding that this is not your narrative and so you open your mind and you allow whatever you're encountering to inform you rather than you immediately trying to define it or describe it or whatever in your own context and the the reason why i think people don't do that is because it's it's incredibly that in and of itself is a vulnerability right right (laughs) because as soon as you let somebody else begin to define a part of reality it's going to challenge your existing reality yeah, I think it's humility and then and the recognition that like we're not going to get it right. Yeah. And that's also a vulnerability because we want to get it right. We want we want to feel like we're important. We want to, you know, try to know that we have like some outcome or impact. And I think that one of the things that has been hardest for me to learn is like what does it mean to to just be in a space without having to define it. Yeah. And I'm a practitioner of Mexicayo tradition. I haven't done Aztec dance in forever, but like I, you know, used to do Aztec dance a lot. We go to me and my partner go to Sweat Lodge. Um, there's all of these spaces that are, but they're also not Nahuatl specific spaces, right? Like they're, they're they don't come from like my own cultural history. Uh, Mexicayo tradition is more defined around like Mexico uh, and Mexicano traditions, and it, it took me a while to, to to walk in those spaces in a way that where I didn't have to like I didn't. It was, it's hard to not want to to define something like yeah. you were saying like yeah. you know step into it and to just let myself be in those spaces and let that lesson happen and then I would you know like come home and I would journal because I, I have like my own space and I can like you know then define it for myself in this way but to be in those spaces and to recognize uh, that you know I can I feel now comfortable in being able to speak out um, or speak into those spaces because I've really done good hard work to make sure that it that I am walking in integrity in those spaces but it is also exhausting you know I think that and that's also I don't 
I think that that's also really important just like to recognize the exhaustion of like leading really, really, really intentional lives. And it doesn't, even when we're trying to leave intentional lives, it still gets messed up, you know, and it's still not done right. And so sometimes it is like, I have no mental capacity to deal with this right now. So I'm not even going to engage uh, in that or the, just like that exhaustion. And so sometimes even, I think that definitely land acknowledgements are incredibly important. And I think that something we've started saying at Mycelium Youth Network, uh, when we open up spaces is we also recognize that this is not enough. This is one of a first of like many steps in the, in where we want to go. And just like leaving it at that, like recognizing we're not doing enough, saying it out loud, and then being like, it's also really exhausting. And so, how do we how do we both balance our own mental care of self um, as as we navigate all of these different spaces, some of which are ours, or some of which we're trying to think into or or learn about? Yeah. Wow. Let's talk about mycelium um, because that is your current amazing mission in life, and. Um, Tell the people what you're doing now. Yeah, so Mycelium Youth Network, I it was started in 2017, and I started it out of a deep sense of anxiety and hope for the future. And, you know, I've, I've been an organizer. Organizing is like my background. I've been an organizer for like 20 years mm-hmm. and in all of these different movements, which I think has been vital to me now being a place to start mycelium from a hopefully like really holistic comprehensive perspective that is not silos i've been trying to define what that means uh, to be able to create something that is encompassing of so much but mycelium was started in 2017 uh, when the tubs fires were happening and i had just had my second child my daughter and i remembered breastfeeding her and at the time in california And now we're seeing this as worse and worse every year, but at the time we couldn't open doors, like people would immediately get headaches, like young kids would get like nosebleeds, uh, the air, like you could bear those poor, poor visibility. And now that is like, looking back, I'm like, wow, that was nothing, right? Because this year or last year, 2020, the sky literally turned orange in the Bay Area. And environmental justice hadn't necessarily been one of my areas, but, knowing what is coming. And I think that the science is really clear on climate change and, you know, what we're going to be experiencing. Uh, I kept thinking, like, how are we preparing young people for this? And how are we doing that in a way that is moving beyond just having political, like passing policies to stop the worst of it, which I think is incredibly important. I think there's amazing organizations doing absolutely incredible work that we support um, that I personally support, but then also mycelium works in alignment with, but how are we actually preparing them? And my family's from, or I grew up in uh, New Orleans and my family went through Katrina. I had oh. left years before. And as this, these forest fires were happening here and I recognize that like we, it is impossible to breathe, you know? And so we talk a lot about water is life, but like it, like air itself, like we couldn't breathe and the effect that that was having on our bodies. And I know what my family went through in Katrina and how, and what so many communities went through, particularly low-income Black communities, and thinking like the government is not going to save us when things get hard, right? And so what are we creating to help young people uh, and to help our communities save themselves when the worst of the worst comes? Maybe not even the worst of the worst, when what we know is coming is coming. 
And so mycelium combines ancestral traditions and practices, which for me is vital because it lives as that cultural piece. So how are we not just having an immediate change, but like, what does it mean to start reshifting the way that we are thinking? And we do that through pulling both from my own cultural traditions and practices, educators, traditions and practices, and young people that we're serving. And we're saying, what are, what are forms of resilience? What are forms of sustainability, of regeneration that are, that are ancestrally present in your DNA? And how do we start thinking into those, even if we do not yet know exactly what it is, we do know pieces of it. And so how do we start pulling that in and having young people start thinking about a different way to be in relationship with earth, with themselves, with their community, uh, with their plant and animal relatives. So how do we have that as like a cultural shift? So what does it mean to think into that? And then also what is as we're doing that, how do we then combine that with science, technology, engineering, arts, and math uh, to do like just like a straight ahead steam. So on any given week, young people could be learning about the run for salmon here in the Bay Area. They could be learning about um, NOAA, National Oceanic and Atmospheric administration data on sea level rise wow. and or they could be building a full-scale water catchment and purification unit to um, attach to a school yeah or they wow. could be tinctures or sevs or solar panel batteries they could be walking their neighborhoods uh, to do to forage for medicinal or edible plants it's like how do you what are the things that we would need like if an earthquake were to hit if wildfire season were to hit if sea level rise were to happen how are we both being proactive about what we can do to, to stop some of it as like direct action and then also how are we uh, thinking about like adaptation to when to what is happening yeah okay i'm going to ask you a super heavy question and it's something that i it it weighs on me because I've seen the effects of this conversation on my own children. And, you know, they, I, I feel like kids today, and I guess every adult says this, but I really think, especially because we're in the digital age, kids today have so much exposure to so much information and they're aware, acutely aware that they're growing into a world that is, incredibly broken and the anxiety that comes with educating children about the state of climate is so heartbreaking for an adult who you know especially a parent it is tempting to not do it <laughs> frankly because I don't want them to experience that level of fear and anxiety as you said the whole thing came out of your anxiety slash hope how do you work with young people to get them mentally prepared for certain inevitabilities? Because we do know that there are things that are going to happen that are not going to be good. And at the same time, have that sense of agency and hope to problem solve and to be excited about engaging around this issue. Yeah, I think that that's such an important question because yes, <laughs> young people are 
fully aware, at least the people I talk to, that climate change is real, that they will have to grow up into this world. And they are absolutely terrified and anxious about that. I mean, I think that that is both true and like anecdotal, like here's, you know, the young people we talk to, but also like studies are showing that more and more young people feel um, hopeless or they're not, they don't feel like they want to have children. Or we're also seeing like teen suicides on the rise. And adults, by and large, are not talking to them about it. Right, right. Like, by and large, (laughs) for the most part, for exactly the reasons that I think, like you mentioned, uh, as well as like our own sense of anxiety around that and being like, it feels so big that it feels like we cannot wrap our hands around it or arms around it. And because we cannot, it's just so much easier to not think about it. And also I'll say like the standards, like the science standards here, uh, the national um, next generation science standards, you know, only talk about climate change twice in science standards. Um, Is that true? It is, like directly mentioning it. I mean, there's other ways that like things can be, you know, brought in, but like in terms of like, let us dive deep into climate change and what is going to happen. There's, there's so little of it in our educational system. And I think that, which again, like all leads to not talking about it or the sense that there's nothing we can do. And then another response that I see from adults is to say like young people's climate activism, which has been incredible, uh, is, you know, both inspirational. They're like, oh, you're the reason we have hope. And we're so excited uh, about the work that you're doing. You know, we have Greta, for example, is like the perfect um, international figure that we people look to, adults look to. uh, And- But can I just say something? That actually makes me so angry. That's what I was going to say. Yeah, because that's bullshit. That's that's exploitative. And that is actually almost, to me, that feels abusive. Like using children for your own goddamn hope because you don't have the guts to face it yourself. Exactly. That's exactly, and it's adultist. It feels really, really adultist. It feels like we are putting all of the responsibility on young people but still not having real conversations with them and actually denying them the institutional power that they would need to even be able to make that change. A, it's not their responsibility, but they don't even have, like, they're systematically shut out of all systems uh, that would allow them to even have the power to make that change. And so, yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. That's the other response from adults. So it's either A, like not talking about it or B, uh, this like very adultist, like hope framework um, or inspiration framework. And I think that the conversations that we have with young people, we have at like several different levels. Um, One, we talk about how we create safe space, like safe, we create a safe container to even be able to have the conversation, right? Because I think that that's really important. Like it's never just something that like we'll drop in conversation and then we won't create a container to hold that as like a place of fear or anxiety or anger. So we always make sure that like, if we are going to go into the conversation, like how do we, how do we hold that in a really good way and recognize that it will have a visceral impact on the young people we are talking about. There's that, what we do at Mycelium is we will break it down into like several different programs. So we have like our clean air is a right, water is life, growing our health. And so we'll talk both about what are things that are coming because we want young people to know and to be able to plan and to mitigate and adapt if they have to. And then we'll also give them things that they can immediately do in their individual homes. So when wildfire season, for example, is is upon us, which is coming now um, earlier and earlier in California, 
we do talk about clean airs, right? They can't breathe. We talk about how this is gonna get worse. So let's get prepared and let's come into this from a place of um, empowerment. And so that means that like we teach young people to create DIY air purifiers. That means we talk about respiratory health, whether it's wildfire season or not, both indoor and outdoor. We're like, here's like three to five things that you can immediately do to support yourself and your family and your community. And then if necessary, we also are like, let's figure out then what are polluting companies in your area that you can also write letters to, that you can also talk to your, um, city council person about like, like, here's how you can make like bigger change if you want to make bigger political change. But we always say here's things that you can immediately do. And I think and by breaking it down into like very specific areas with very specific immediate things that they can do in their homes. Uh, that has an impact where young people are like, Oh, I there's actually something I can do. Right, right, right. So yes, wildfires are horrible and yes, they're coming. And yes, we can talk about how we can address that at a larger level through, you know, these policy uh, actions. But like, I could actually make sure I have a DIY air filter that will make sure that my family is not breathing in toxic air. Yeah. And I can make sure that I'm keeping up on my respiratory health by um, creating a tincture that I can find, um, you know, either materials for either like foraging out in our neighborhood or, you know, like with household products. And so it, it, it is that it is not much, but it is something. And I think it's, it's also the first place we go to. It's also the first step in a larger conversation that we want to have around what does it mean for climate change to come. Yeah. And then we also then pair that with the ancestral practices that young people have that are a response to 500 plus years of colonization, <laughs> you know? So like the, that could be like drumming in class. That could be, uh, you know, like lighting sage, lighting copal. That can be like singing particular songs. Like these are all forms that people, that their ancestors, our ancestors have used as a way to survive multiple genocides. So it's like, how do we both recognize that climate change is coming, which will have a devastating impact. And also for so many of our communities, they're experiencing multiple, gen they're the survivors of multiple genocides. Uh, and so, and they have tools that their ancestors have given them and their cultures have given them that allow them to, to incorporate that as a um, mental or emotional response to, to like the triggers that they're experiencing. And so how do we, and how do we have both? Yes. And the other piece that you are absolutely amazing at, again, pulling in the thread of your fantasy and science fiction, you know, I grew up watching Star Trek, which gave me such a positive view of the future. Like, I, I can't fucking wait for Star Trek <laughs> to happen, right? Like, that's, that's what I want. When you're able to visualize those things, when you're able to envision positive changes that happen in the future and that impacts everyone for the better, then I think you're able to carry on in even when things seem quite bleak. Um, and so you recently had your first, your organization's, I believe, first virtual event. It was a conference, two-day conference. And I would love for you to tell folks what you did because it was so coming from my background in, you know, digital media, I loved what you did because it added this completely different dimension to something that most people will consider a very limiting circumstance, right? Like COVID's here, all we can do is Zoom. And you're like, well, no, actually let's build it out a little bit and try something new. I love what you did. 
Yes, thank you. Uh, I'll also actually say before I talk about apocalyptic resilience is we also just we also create affinity spaces for young people. Oh, okay. Uh, that are free classes that young people can take that are not based in like how do you learn how to do x y or z but are just meant to be spaces where young people can express themselves um, we have a talk black to me for black youth quarantine for queer youth uh, a sacred circle group for native youth and a um in Lakesh, which is a activism affinity group, but it's not, and none of them are meant to be productive spaces. Yeah. They're yeah. only meant to be containers, six week uh, containers for young people to come in and say whatever they want uh, and express that however they want. And they are always free. Wonderful. For young people. Okay. And so that's another thing we do is I, I wanted to like acknowledge that because that's, I think sometimes it's important to be in your affinity space uh, with like people, or like other young people that look just like you talking about an issue um, that is important to you that you might not even feel comfortable saying in front of you know, your friends that might not be from that particular background. So, so there's that. Um, but apocalyptic resilience uh, actually came from young people. And we were looking at what we wanted to do for a two-day virtual conference. And we've been really thinking about uh, how, do we, how do we kind of subvert virtual spaces? Because I feel like, um, you know, COVID happened and all of a sudden we we're all virtual. Uh -huh. It's really exhausting and tiring. And it's also like from the, the sci-fi fantasy nerd in me is like, it's exciting to think virtual. Like I have so many fantasy novels that I've read that exist in virtual spaces and we're not doing it justice uh -huh. by and large. Uh, and so how are we like thinking into virtual spaces uh, in a different way? And I'm a huge gamer. Yeah. I'm a huge video gamer. And so, and I can be at a screen for hours when I'm playing a video game. So I'm like, we need to figure this out. But we went to young people and we were like, we wanna have like a two day conference fundraiser for mycelium. Uh, you know, what do you think we should do? Like, here's some ideas that we were bouncing off of them. Uh, and one of our most popular classes that we run at mycelium is Dungeons and Dragons. And young people in this focus group or listening space, I think is what we called it, because no young person wants to go to a focus group. But uh, <laughs> in the listening space, uh, we had like we had young people who were like, "Can we just play? Like, we want? Can we just like play Dungeons and Dragons? Like, we don't necessarily want to go to a two day conference on a Saturday and Sunday after a week of Zoom classes." Thank God somebody said it. Right. They're like, no, that doesn't sound like it's fun at all. I was like, but we will have cool. They're like, no, no, no. They're like, we want to play. And we want to play Dungeons and Dragons. Like they're like, can't we just play two days of Dungeons and Dragons? And I immediately started thinking like, that's exactly what we need to do. Like we need to create it as like a gamer gaming space. And we need to figure out like, we need to figure out how we can make this feel alive. And one of the beauties of, um, the you know being a huge reader is like discovering like afro science fiction and fantasy and indigenous science fiction and fantasy because of what they allow for us possibilities and i think i love video games so much because uh and sci-fi fantasy and comic books because all of a sudden the rules that apply in our regular world and our like this you know irl world um, are no longer present in gamings in games or comic books or fantasy settings and then all of a sudden like 
we are filled with potential and we are filled with possibility. And we don't necessarily have to take for certain the structures that kind of dominate our lives. And so apocalyptic resilience was the desire um, to create a fantasy science fiction-y space that was pulling from Dungeons and Dragons, gamer culture, comic books, to say, what if you are the hero of your own story, which you are, but it doesn't feel like that a lot of times in real life. What if you were the hero of like a story that is centered around climate change, but climate and climate change is is present, but it is not the story, right? Like you and community development is the story. Nice. So we had, so we built it around like you were a gamer in, in a gaming system. And so when you signed up for the conference, you chose between like seven different um, character classes, um, similar to Dungeons and Dragons. And each one had, it was like social justice warrior, social justice, um, like druid. It was, it was just a lot of different classes. And they each came with spells that were geared toward, or abilities geared towards um, science fiction, uh, fantasy and climate justice and activism. And then young people had a choice of, I think it was like 12 to 15 workshops that then allowed them to customize their character in who they wanted to be in a game that we played. So the second half of the second day, we played Dungeons and Dragons for like three or four hours. And depending on the workshops they had gone to, which allowed them to customize their character, they had special abilities for a game where we were looking at sea level rise and deforestation. But again, that wasn't the you know, we don't, we don't focus on that. We focus on like, what does it mean to empower yourself um, to be able to even enter into that space and feel yeah. confident. Yeah. And so we had workshops on upcycling clothing. Uh, we had workshops on gardening. We had workshops on creating a medicinal first aid kit. Uh, we had workshops on like sacred songs that you can sing at different moments for like inner resilience. We had um, something on like socio-emotional learning. It was, it so it's all things that we think, okay, if this is climate, if, if climate change is coming, which it is, then like, what are skills that you need? But how do we talk about them using the language of gamer culture yeah. that young people are excited to participate? Yeah. Ah, that's a freaking amazing. <laughs> okay. So how did it go? It was in it November. So well, November, it was November 14th and 15th. We had about 140 people sign up. Half of them were young people, wow. which is incredible because again it was after a week of zoom and then another week of zoom of like teaching that they have to go into and almost all of the young people say towards the end we played um we had like five D games going simultaneously uh around like all of these issues and we got incredible feedback for it i'm actually really excited to do it in person and go like full cosplay so depending on how COVID rolls out this year uh, that's one goal but you know like also young people could create avatars or they can come in full cosplay uh, costumes Uh, it was and then create like virtual avatars that like mimicked their movements and then they could add to it and so it was it was really really exciting I this is all of this See, this is why I have this podcast. Everybody should know about what you're doing. This is so good. This is so interesting to me. And it's, you know, God damn, there so many people just sit around wringing their hands and complaining about how terrible things are. And yes, things are terrible. We're not in denial about that. But 
the the solution is not going to drop from the sky we have to create it and the way that you do that is by empowering people by helping them open up to all of their potential and by creative thinking and i mean i just i i sleep better knowing that you're in the world <laughs> i mean it like this is the kind of thing uh that i wish would just catch fire. And, and I, I, again, I'm always wary of like these big giant, you know, nonprofit ink solutions. I think that the way that we solve these problems is exactly what you're doing, right? You, you are such a unique person with a unique community and a unique background. And you've cultivated in this organic way, a thing that has so much value and such great impact and just imagine if we all did that, right? Just imagine if we all just were like, well, what is it that I can do, right? With who I am, with my background, with my skills, with whatever I have, my tool, the tools at, at my disposal, mm -hmm. and then worked it. And I think about that all the time. I think I'm still searching for my own, but I see people like you and I'm like, that's what I want to be like. I want to be like that. I want to be somebody who's making a difference, not not because of some theoretical thing, but because of who I am in the world. And I just admire it so much. I do. Oh, thank you. It is, it is also very hard. Uh, I think that, uh, and it's also, I think that something I've been thinking a lot about is how do I sit with my despair and my exhaustion? Mm. Uh, and there is, and so just like, I, I, I don't know, I just, I've been really reflecting on that, like as 2020 closes and like, you know, 2021 started up is like, what does it mean to really sit? And, and it is so incredibly difficult. And I think that it is, and at the same time, like I am a, I play Sims a lot. And even in Sims, I'm a workaholic. There's a new trait you can get called work at home. Like, thanks Sims. But like, I, like I just throw myself into, into my work because otherwise it is so easy to, to feel so much despair. Uh, and but yes, there's actually a quote that it's, I'm looking at it right now. I'm in my bedroom and I'm looking at it right now. And it's, I believe it's from the Talmud. Uh, I might've mispronounced that, but it's like, it's the first thing I see when I wake up. And I remembered um, reading, one of my friends uh, from another group that I was part of, the Community Organizing Residency, um, they, she would like brought me up on this quote, but it's like, it says like, do not be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now, love mercy now, walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it. And it is the first thing I see when I wake up every single morning. And some mornings I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna watch some Buffy and <laughs> like veg out. But other mornings I'm like, okay, all right. All right, let me think about what that means. And I, I think about that a lot. And um, one of my first jobs organizing was with Justice for Janitors. And I remembered I had a coworker who was, I was really upset by something and it wasn't, we're not pushing it hard enough. Uh, and he was just like, it'll, the work will still be there tomorrow. The work will still be there tomorrow. Yeah. And, uh, but it is, yeah. So, but thank you. I really, really, really appreciate that. And I really value the work uh, that you do. And I follow you so much on social media. Nice. So, thank thank you. you. Thank you. 
All right. Well, I, you have been incredibly generous with your time uh, and I appreciate you taking the time and I'm really looking forward to sharing your story and you with the world. I, I'm just really grateful and I hope that you'll come back at some point. Thank you, Amanda. I will talk to you later. I'll see you on Facebook and social media. Of course you will. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. And don't come back until you've redeemed yourselves.